This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Anthony Burgess was one of the most important and prolific British writers of the 20th century. Most famous for his dystopian vision, A Clockwork Orange, he wrote 33 novels, 25 books of non-fiction, and over 250 musical compositions. This podcast aims to illuminate Burgess's life and work, and his connections to other 20th century literature, film and music. So join us as we explore the world of Anthony Burgess. In this episode, we're talking to one of the 2023 Liana Burgess Fellows, Dr. Maria Palla, who has spent three weeks researching in the archives at the Burgess Foundation. In its capacity as an educational charity, the Burgess Foundation offers grants to researchers and scholars with an interest in the life and work of Anthony Burgess and other connected subjects, such as 20th century literature and musical composition. The Liana Burgess Fellowship helps international researchers to visit the archives at the Burgess Foundation. It's named after Burgess's wife, who set up the foundation in 2003 and was instrumental in preserving his personal papers and possessions, all of which are available to researchers at our facilities in Manchester. Dr. Maria Palla is Assistant Professor at the Institute of English and American Studies at Pazmani Petr Catholic University in Budapest, Hungary. Her research focuses on contemporary literatures in English, which she examines using the tools of post-colonial criticism. She's published widely on Canadian literature, focusing on representations of the diasporic experiences of immigrants to the country. She's currently working on Anthony Burgess's Malayan novels. I'm Graham Foster and I spoke to Maria Palla at the Burgess Foundation in Manchester in July 2023. I'm delighted to welcome Maria Palla to the podcast. She's one of our Liana Burgess Fellows at the Burgess Foundation, currently uh, t- coming towards the end of her research at the, at the Burgess Foundation. Um, Maria, welcome to the, the, the podcast. Thank you for having me here. First of all, uh, I'd like to ask when you first discovered the work of Anthony Burgess and, and what led you to make him the focus of your, your research? Actually, it was in the early 1990s that I first came across uh, the name of Anthony Burgess and um, got um, gradually familiar with his work. Um, Of course, it was A Clockwork Orange uh, that uh, introduced me uh, to his work, uh, but not uh, the novel. So um, after I uh, graduated uh, from university uh, with an MA degree in English, uh, Russian and Education, It was only after that uh, that um, I I had a chance uh, to watch the movie, and it wasn't even in Hungary. Um, So it was uh, Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation of A Clockwork Orange uh, that I first watched, and following that, um, I read the novel. I found both the film and the novel quite shocking, uh, to be honest. But then both of them were fascinating in different ways, and the novel especially uh, because of its uh, linguistic achievements, the uh, language that Burgess created for it. And uh, it was Time for a Tiger uh, that I read with uh, great joy. And the other day I discovered that it was uh, 15 years ago that um, I first gave a lecture in an undergraduate course on uh, Time for a Tiger. 
Uh, it was part uh, of a series of lectures on post-colonial literatures. But another reason uh, why I chose this novel was uh, that I very much like it when a novel is about serious topics but can also be funny, comic, and humorous. And uh, I also thought that my students would like that uh, combination. And actually, the choice was justified uh, because one of my students who took the course with me went to Malaya on a holiday. And uh, she brought back a can of tiger beer for me. And I still have the can. So uh, I think uh, Burgess and I uh, must have made a lasting impression on this student. Last but not least, uh, I have to mention that I've been married uh, also uh, to an academic uh, who has a, a lifelong interest and great enthusiasm for Burgess's work. And I'm surrounded with Burgess scholarship. All this uh, provides me with a lot of inspiration and also motivates me to keep on uh, studying Anthony Burgess's work. We mentioned you're, you're here as one of the current Liana Burgess Fellows at the Burgess Foundation. What can you tell us about the research you're doing at the moment in, in the archive here in Manchester? Well, it's a great opportunity uh, to be here and uh, I'm uh, thankful to the International Anthony Burgess uh, Foundation to uh, have provided me with the means of coming here. And also, I think uh, they've done a good job, a great job, making this archive available to researchers. And uh, for that reason, I'm mainly interested in uh, Burgess's personal documents, scripts, and uh, earlier drafts of his work, and also various uh, belongings of his, his personal library, uh, which is also housed uh, in the archive. So it was just yesterday that I found his English-Malay dictionaries. And uh, all this adds uh, to the image of the man, the writer, the author, uh, that I uh, previously had, you know, I can just see better how uh, motivated he was to uh, study languages, how interested he was in uh, other people's cultures, because in this dictionary there are rules of grammar and um, sample conversations, uh, but um, I could see that um, uh, there were uh, handwritten translations of the Malayan uh, script. So um, he must have been really dedicated to mastering the language. And I think that it is particularly important for me uh, when it comes to understanding the Malayan trilogy better, because it's one of his autobiographical novels, and to see how Burgess, as a person, was committed to understanding these people through their culture helps me uh, understand the novel and the whole trilogy uh, better. You sort of briefly detailed some of the discoveries you made. Uh, are there any discoveries that you, you made that have surprised you or changed the focus of your research? Yes, um, you know, I made a deliberate decision to uh, focus on items uh, that are only available here. And um, I had the um, opportunity to look at some of the artifacts, uh, pieces of furniture 
or prints that the Burgesses brought back from uh, Malaya. But at the same time, uh, there is a large collection of photographs that uh, Burgess and his first wife, Lynn Burgess, took while in Malaya. In one of the photographs, um, you can actually spot a painting by an English artist. Uh, the painting is titled Saloon Bar, uh, and uh, it was created by Gilbert Wood. And uh, Burgess's first wife also annotated some of these photographs. So it's amazing to see the handwriting uh, of the people who uh, took the photographs. So she commented uh, on this photo, uh, writing on the back, oh, that's the painting that we had back in England. And now it's in our living room in our home in Malaya. So uh, just looking at uh, how certain items from Malaya found their way to England and how some other pieces of art went to Malaya and then uh, returned to England indicates to me how cultural exchange can take place between such different people and uh, their uh, cultural milieu. But these photos are interesting for other reasons too, because they show the home of the Burgesses from the outside, the front porch, the side porch, their car, the interior of their home, the living room, and Burgess's wife Lynn points out uh, the stools that they had made uh, by the local villagers and the cushions that she herself padded because they wanted uh, to create a bar in one of the corners of their living room. And uh, this is like recreating an Englishman's home. And uh, she also made sure that uh, the cushions matched the drapery in the living room. So it is all a very interesting attempt at uh, making herself and her husband feel at home in that alienating place. Alienating because uh, they were unfamiliar with it. While they may have been seasick on the ship carrying them from uh, Britain to Malaya, they must have been homesick in Malaya. And to fight this homesickness, uh, this nostalgia for the home left behind in England, it uh, must have been a way of recreating the home left behind in the northern part of Europe. And you can also feel for uh, Burgess's wife, because on one of the pictures that shows her, uh, she writes, here is glamour for you. And you can see a woman alone, uh, dressed up very nicely, and that's all the glamour she has. So there is a sense of irony there. It was more difficult for her because she didn't have a job there. Uh, Anthony Burgess had a purpose uh, when uh, he arrived uh, in Malaya. And um, he makes a very interesting comment uh, on this um, in uh, A Kind of Failure, which is the title of a documentary in which he gave this uh, interview for the BBC in 1981, uh, where he says, and let me just quote his words, uh, for some reason the tropics bestow on white men a great appetite for sensuality, food, drink, and sex, whereas white women dwindle and die, end of quote. 
And although his wife didn't die there, she suffered from all kinds of illnesses. And having the opportunity to see the photographs, you can also see uh, the different experiences that the two of them collected. There are photos of Anthony Burgess teaching the Malayan children going out uh, with friends, but you get a sense of his wife living a more isolated and uh, lonely life. From what you've said so far about your research, it's it's obvious that your focus is on post-colonial experience as well as writing. Where where do you think Burgess fits in to your research more generally into post-colonial writing? And, And how would you position... Burgess in the tradition of post-colonial writing? Where, where does he lie in that tradition? I think just like uh, his time in Malaya coincided with a time in the history of Malaya that involved a transition. It was a time in uh, Malayan history when the country ceased to be a colony and became an independent country uh, by the time Burgess left in 1957. And his writing is also kind of a transition between colonial and post-colonial writing, uh, I would say. In many ways, he continues the colonial tradition because he places the white Europeans in the focus of his writing, and it is very much a male world. It's very important for his protagonist, uh, Victor Crabbe, to maintain British ideas of order, stability, tolerance. But it is emphasised in the work and in Burgess's uh, comments that these are British ideas that he wanted to introduce to the Malayan uh, people. So in that sense, it is very much colonial. And this again leads us to another common trope in colonial writing, the role Uh, women play or do not play in these uh, novels uh, depicting colonial times. Actually, in Kipling's work, Kim, uh, women often appear as distractors who are in the way of the male characters carrying out their colonial duty, civilizing the eastern places, or they are assigned the role of prostitutes. So they appear in uh, secondary positions in the earlier colonial works. Now, I think Burgess includes a lot more uh, local people in his novels with more understanding, and these women play greater roles. Uh, They can be thought of as catalysts for the plot, uh, for the characters. If you think about Chanorma in the anime in the blanket, But then she is cheated out of her money, so she loses eventually when uh, she marries a white man. Or um, Rosemary in Beds in the East, as uh, Andrew Biswell calls her, she is an unsuccessful example of cultural hybridity. So um, the interracial relationships always end up uh, failing. And in that sense, again, Uh, Burgess is closer to uh, his colonial uh, predecessors. I would say that he appears to be closest to George Orwell, how George Orwell subverts to some extent uh, the colonial traditions of writing in his Burmese days. 
well, as the title says, Burmese Days is not about Malaya, but is set um, in the same region in British colonial times. It's uh, very interesting to uh, compare these two works, but that would require an academic paper uh, to uh, discuss all the details of the two works in the ways in which the two are similar. You're also an expert in Canadian literature and culture, which I guess fits into sort of a post-colonial remit, but how, how does Canadian literature contrast with British literature? What parallels can you draw between your work on Burgess and your work on Canadian literature? Yes, um, I actually also teach a course um, on the post-colonial aspects of uh, Canada, and um, in that regard, I usually mention four of these aspects. Uh, one of them is uh, quite obvious and uh, relates uh, to our talk today, uh, the relationship between Canada and uh, Britain, as um, what is now Canada was colonized, parallel by the British and the French. So that's one aspect. Another one, uh, which is implied in the first, is the relationship between uh, the British and the French, even in today's Canada. It's not without problems. And yet another uh, one, uh, another aspect of Canada's post-colonial character is uh, the relationship between the white population and the indigenous population of the country. And because Canada has a very powerful southern neighbor, of course, the relationship with the United States must be considered and we are talking about culture today, so the cultural imperialism of the United States as uh, it affects Canada. But uh, to compare uh, Canadian literature and British literature, I would just like to point out one detail which relates to what we've been discussing in this interview today, and that's a difference between the two societies and their uh, literatures. It's only uh, since the late 1940s and 1950s that British society has become increasingly multiracial and multicultural. But since that, more diverse vo voices have been heard in Britain. Canada, in contrast with Britain, has um, always been uh, very diverse. Before the arrival of the French and the English, uh, there were already uh, multiple bands of indigenous people populating the land. So uh, Canada was uh, declared officially multicultural in 1971, but it had been multicultural uh, in practice in terms of its population before that. Uh, but that announcement of multiculturalism and the introduction of the multicultural policy in 1971 by the then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau gave impetus to the diversification of its um, literature because now there are a lot more ethnic writers, indigenous writers uh, in Canada. To illustrate um, some differences, uh, between the two literatures. I also thought of comparing Anthony Burgess with one particular Canadian writer. And that Canadian writer is Marguerite Lawrence. Now, she uh, may be referred to as an older contemporary of Marguerite Atwood. But similarly to Anthony Burgess, she also uh, went uh, from her birthplace 
Canada to some colonial territories in the 1950s. So uh, she lived in Somaliland, uh, which was a British protectorate at that time, and also on the Gold Coast, which later became Ghana. Actually, Ghana became independent in 1957, just at the same time when uh, Malaysia became an independent country. But I think um, no matter but what Burgess says about uh, himself being attracted to anarchism, uh, this is again a quote from uh, one of his, um, from the first volume of uh, his autobiography, Little Wilson and Be God, uh, where he says, I was not really anything but a renegade, Catholic, liberal, humanist with tendencies to anarchism. I do not think nearly 50 years after I have much changed my position. So on the one hand, he says that, but on the other hand, he also talks about colonialism as benign and talks about colonial times as a time when everybody knew where he stood, and these are his words. I don't think that he has any doubts about his uh, British identity, no matter where he lived. In contrast to this, it was in the colonial outposts where Margaret Lawrence lived in Africa that she realized her more conflicting uh, position being colonizer and a colonized at the same time. Uh, because Canadians for a long time, at least till the 1960s, uh, had this sense of cultural inferiority and uh, felt that they were colonized by Britain. They lived on the periphery. Canadian literature was not taught at Canadian universities until the 1960s. In the English departments, they taught English literature and nothing local. So if a writer wanted to be renowned um, and came from Canada, that writer had to be published in England. And this is uh, what happened to Margaret Lawrence as well. She had that sense of inferiority. She went to live in England. She published uh, her writing in England first, but then she returned to Canada. And at the same time, she uh, discovered her privileged position in Africa. She was attracted to uh, Somali culture, folk stories, tales, and poetry the same way as Burgess was attracted to uh, Malayan culture. And uh, Margaret Lawrence also wrote her first novel uh, based on her African experience, and uh, she wrote that uh, novel in Africa. So there are several parallels here between her and Anthony Burgess. Uh, what I'm trying to point out here is uh, that the Canadian writer has a lot more doubts as to where she positions herself. So it's not by chance that one of Margaret Lawrence's um, most influential essays is called A Place to Stand On. So uh, she spent a lot of time and did a lot of work on working out what makes someone a Canadian, how her ancestry can be combined with her presence in Canada. Uh, she came of um, Irish-Scottish background, uh, but she also introduced in her 
last novel, The Diviner's a Métis character, who is uh, of a mixed uh, European and indigenous uh, background. So I think that she tried to combine all this diversity and unite them in order to form her own identity. While I, I don't quite see that in Anthony Burgess's writing. Well, that's fascinating. We don't hear really that sort of comparison between British literature and Canadian literature a lot, certainly in this country. One of the other things you've, you've uh, researched is the Hungarian diaspora, particularly Hungarians living in Canada or people of Hungarian descent living in Canada. How does this research fit into to your wider literary research? Do you see parallels between this research and your investigations into post-colonial literature? Actually, I can connect both um, my study of Anthony Burgess and his work, uh, my um, academic work in post-colonial studies, and also diaspora studies, by saying that uh, all of them involve the global movement uh, of people. It's very important this uh, global flow uh, of people in post-colonial criticism and also in uh, diaspora studies. However, it's interesting to see how people come up with different approaches uh, to this movement and the concomitant effects of uh, movement. Because uh, when uh, you talk about post-colonial criticism, you obviously think about colonial uh, writing as well as post-colonial writing. Post-colonial writing as a kind of criticism of the preceding uh, colonial era. And there is that critical edge that is very important in post-colonial uh, criticism. The uh, criticism of the colonizing power to impose their culture on um, the people of the territories. Uh, that uh, they try to control and uh, dominate. So in colonial culture, you examine how the culture of the colonizer impacts uh, the local population, while in post-colonial culture, you call attention to the fact that actually the culture of the colonized uh, had an influence on the culture of the colonizers. And uh, it took quite a long time for the colonizing people to admit that. At the same time, when you look at people living in diaspora, uh, you see the, how diasporas are the result of people's movement. But diaspora uh, is a work of Greek origin, and the first part, dia, means over and through, and the second part uh, translates as to scatter or sow. And for a long time, uh, this word was associated with the experience of the Jewish people and uh, was connected with traumatic experiences. But if you think of the other translation, that uh, the second part of uh, the word diaspora can also be translated as sowing, then you think of the opportunity of new beginnings. And I think this is how a lot of critics consider uh, the diaspora experience these days. So it is a, a movement of people that is involved in the diaspora experience, but it's a different sort of uh, movement when uh, people are uh, forced to leave their homeland and uh, end up 
in this um, liminal space, in this in-between space between their homeland and uh, the space of the home country, which can result in a feeling of displacement and can be a cause of uh, trauma for um, a lot of people in the diaspora. But at the same time, it is a very flexible space uh, which gives opportunities for change and also uh, for fluid identities. So people can make a new start, a new beginning. Uh, but what is, um, again, common in uh, Burgess's experience in post-colonial criticism and diaspora criticism, but it, these are very general observations, really, is that there are possibilities for intercultural exchange. And I think this is what fascinated Anthony Burgess in his career as a writer. And it, this is what is studied uh, by post-colonial critics, how two cultures can coexist without, or, or is it possible at all for one culture not to dominate the other culture? And in diaspora criticism, I think that the diaspora space is thought of as a place of, you know, opportunities as well, where, where you can discover new uh, possibilities and uh, shape your own identity. Well, Maria, thank you for joining us on the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and hear about your, your research and your, your unique takes on, on Burgess's literature. My pleasure. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. To find out more about Anthony Burgess and how to support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.